we we talked about. I want to kind of put some flesh on the bones that we kind of abstractly, you know, talk about these things. I want to use a particular example of a particular family because one way that people try to understand parapolitics, try to understand U.S. intelligence, is through the rubric of either um, Yankees versus Cowboys mm-hmm. or Traders versus Warriors. Mm-hmm. So when the Second World World War ends, you have, as we said, the Sullivan and Cromwell white shoe motherfuckers in charge of the CIA. These are people who are capitalist internationalists. They believe in open markets. You know, they believe in soft power, as it were, right? They believe in influence, not just abroad, but also at home. As we see, as the Cold War goes on, you have another growing faction. And as it turns out, it it happens to be uh, based in Texas, of all places, uh, but also in California, which is the Warriors, which is the Cowboys. And this is kind of like the embryonic reflection of what Matt was talking about with this, this thin blue line essence, like, um, idea of, of how the world has to be. The people, the, the family that best represents this shift from the Yankees to the Cowboys is, in fact, the dynasty that synthesizes those, those two things together. A red thread that runs through the entirety of the post-war period and into the 21st century. And that family is, of course, the Bush dynasty. Yeah. You cannot understand this intersection between capitalist power, uh, state power, covert and overt activity, politics, business, oil, without looking at the Bush family. Going all the way back to Prescott Bush through our 41st president, was it? George H.W. Bush? Yep. And then into our 43rd president, which is George W. Bush. It's impossible to understand the changes that happen, not just in the ideology of what empire means as it devolves at this late date, but also the particular factional interests of sectors of capital as they fight their way through the 20th century. Because this is where... I think conspiracists kind of bother me is that they posit an omnipotent conspiratorial class that is monolithic and exists with a, um, uh, a single plan yeah. for world domination. The whole like Rockefeller, you know, 1970s. Trilateral commission. Trilateral no, commission. The protocols. That's the protocols. Just, of, just, yeah. yeah. It's like they all get together all like, yes, we agree. We'll do this. It literally goes back to the protocols of the elders of Zion because ultimately this is a, a theory about a cabal, like an all-powerful cabal. And eventually when you keep digging deeper, it ends up being the Jews, <laughs> as many of these conspiracy theories are. But George H.W. Bush ends up being a very fascinating figure. Not a Jew. Not at all a Jew. He is a, uh, he's about as far from that as possible. He's a waspy-ass motherfucker from Connecticut. And he goes and he actually makes a new life for himself. His father's the senator of Connecticut. He goes down to a place called Midland, Texas, and starts to make business uh, connections in Houston and Dallas, Texas, and begins to be part of this process that we've talked about a couple times on this show, I think, because it keeps coming up which is this movement of power, the base of capitalist power and political power in this country from the Northeast down into the Southwest. George H.W. Bush, by being this Connecticut wasp, but then going down to Texas, 
putting himself in the center of these oil power networks, in the center of military industrial complex power as it's growing in Texas and California and elsewhere, becomes somewhat of an avatar for not just a new political arrangement in the United States, but also a new way that this parapolitical reality works itself out. As Yankees start to, you know, the, the liberal internationalists start to fade from the scene through the 20th century, and the cowboys start to rise, ready to yeehaw their way across the globe. But what's interesting is, is that you could kind of see the, synthes- the synthesizing of, of those two centers of power because it's not, it's, it's a, it was a political conflict, but it was also an underlying uh, uh, political economic conflict. Right. It was, it was Rockefeller versus Goldwater, but right. it was also the entire Northeast establishment capitalists right. versus the new arising ones in the South. Right. But like, the, the real the terrain of conflict was a lot of it was around orientation towards international trade, right? Well, what ended up happening is that the, the Cowboys' economic interests were essentially over time aligned with international finance capital as we hollowed out the country. And what they got in exchange for essentially being bought out at the level of uh, economic conflict is they got to take over the cultural affect of, of conservatism of, of the political project that they both represented. Starting with Goldwater, going through Nixon, into Reagan, George H.W. Bush was weird because he looked like he was like a, a lightweight and a pansy, but in fact, he was an incredibly power, powerful figure. And of course, his son, He's George the W. Bush, the perfect Because he, he was born in Connecticut, but he, he manufactured the affect of a cowboy and everyone, including his enemies, indulged that. He was a Yale bonesman. He, he was a Yale bonesman. He bought, his, he bought his ranch in Midland, I think, like a month before he decided to run for president on the express... Advice of Karl Rove. Karl Rove told him to buy a ranch. So Turn he's blossom. got the affect and the cultural costuming of the Sunbelt fundamentalists, but the politics of international finance capital. It's, it's The only question being uh, one of, like, tactics, like a thing like the Iraq War, which boiled down to, like, more idiosyncratic ideological configurations in government. It's a synthesis. I'm going to do a, a little short thing here. Did you end up reading <clears throat> the um, Russ Baker? Yeah. So we're going to do this together then. <clears throat> it was always the common wisdom, it still is today, that George H.W. Bush was this kind of background figure. He was party to a lot of things that were happening in political power in this country. But then he just sort of became vice president and just sort of became president one day. And then as the common history unfolds or is told to us, he fails miserably to Clinton, and then he just goes away off into the sunset, and the sun arises eight years later. If you look at the 20th century, if you look at certainly in the post-war period, this man, this walking synthesis of the Yankee trader and the Texan cowboy, right, has a huge imprint on the American political life of this country. In fact, if you read Russ Baker's Family of Secrets, he makes the extremely plausible case (laughs) that George H.W. Bush um, was a member of, secretly, of course, of the CIA since 1953, was in Dallas on the morning of November twenty second. That's 22nd. not That's true. He, That's, he was. He was legitimately there when he wasn't supposed to be there. And he, he was later not claimed that he didn't there. remember where he was. He, for years, he didn't remember where he was. 
Uh, and also in the 1970s, in this critical, pivotal decade that we talk about, this turn in the United States was there as the head of the CIA in order to clean up the yes. massive mess that had been you know, uh, created by this limited hangout that the CIA had to do because some honest and intrepid journalists and Congress people were on their ass and figuring out what was going on. Yeah. So... <clears throat> What's shocking about the George H.W. Bush thing is that in 1975, he randomly, shockingly to the American media, becomes the director of the CIA. And they're saying, like, this guy's a complete outsider. I guess he's good because he's not part of the that was CIA. The, that, was the, that was the way they sold it. He's there to clean house, yeah. as it were. He's like a new reforming impulse on yeah. it. But if, as Ross Baker says, George H.W. Bush was part of this Texas oil money nexus... In 1963, that was part of this sort of subterranean network of power that included not just Texas oil men, but also politicians and, of course, the mafia that ends up resulting in not just John F. Kennedy being shot by Oswald, but then Oswald immediately two days later <laughs> being murked. So there was no way that this would ever, you know, whatever happened would come to light. And including the, um, the Warren Commission report, which, if you look at it, tries to argue that it's a case-closed lone gunman thing. What I'm trying to say is that George H.W. Bush was there at the center of each of these covert operations that happened through the late 20th century, that he was there at every second, and it's hard to believe that he wasn't part of uh, this... I, I, would you call it a coup? I don't want to get all like um, like Oliver Stone and start I, to argue I that Camelot coup thing. I'm on record as I'm essentially agnostic on the Kennedy assassination I in think general. think you have to be. Because it's just too, too many ins, too many outs. But there is no argument that George H.W. George Bush was an intelligence asset basically his entire adult life. Uh, as, as, as Russ Baker uh, points out in the book, uh, he he had this oil company in the early sixties called Pata Oil. Offshore, yeah. Uh, that he he created a a oil derrick off the coast of Cuba, randomly. That was uh, removed. That disappeared right after the Bay of Pigs. Yeah, it, it's uh, funny. It was the only time in history when Lloyd's of London gave a multi-million dollar payout uh, for the loss of an asset that they could never even find. It just yeah. disappeared. It's just, it's just plum. It's just, we turned around and it was gone. Yeah. Like, like, uh, f like fucking, uh, like Brigadoon. Uh, but no, he was, he was a guy, he was an intelligence man his whole, his whole life. And another thing that bolsters that is that for some reason, he was decided to be the point man in the Reagan administration for all the fucking black ops and clandestine yes. shit they were doing there. This is what I want. They ran around Contra out of his office. Th this is the central thing, right? So if, and I believe it's true that George H.W. Bush is CIA, has his hand in a lot of these operations in the 1960s and 1970s, up until including potentially murdering the president of the United Ta States. Possibly, yes. <laughs> right, and then going in and uh, cleaning up the mess that the Church Commission had made uh, in the CIA. And then, super importantly, becoming, of course, the vice president in, 19, in the 1980 election in 1981 and presiding over this this fascinating moment. I, I think this is really important because... The way we've been talking about the CIA is as a bureaucratic agency. The CIA from 1947 or whatever it was, all the way up to the 1970s, was the man in the gray flannel suit. 
Yeah. Right. It was these Yankee traders. Right. It was a very sort of the things were compartmentalized. Right. But it was a very much on the up and up. It was very much part of like the same big government sort a of apparatus corporate ideal. Yeah, exactly. Bureaucrat bureaucrats, guys answering the guys in suits getting drunk at noon. So or, or slipping people acid and also doing that <laughs> or themselves. You know, it was, it was a wild time. They did love guys. dosing themselves. Too. Yeah, they did. I mean, can you blame them? No, no, that'd be great. I'd love to gotta let loose every once in a while. You know, that CIA shit was. <laughs> oh, so dope. Man. Oh, my better. God. Just right out of the Sandos lab. Come on. <laughs> we got to get some of that CIA shit, bro. Um, but yeah, like I think the 1970s is, is this really important point as again, the church committee reveals MK ultra reveals the family jewels, the, um, the sort of shit where um, for the first time, Americans, the, the shine starts to come off of U.S. intelligence. They start to realize this detrimental effect it's had not just on the world, but also domestically. They were never supposed to be fucking around in the United States, and people found out. They fucked around, and we found out. There was a massive push for some reform in the United States to try to cut down the power of this essentially secret government, which had only been around at this point for like 23 yeah, years, not, 24 years. It's not years. in the Constitution. Yeah, it's, it's not right. one of those. Tedi- I mean, those things, it's like, you just they, give it up. Pe- people remembered, like, uh, Truman talking about an American Gestapo, mm-hmm. right? And, and as one would expect in, like, a capitalist democracy, popular forces came up and tried to put an end to all this horseshit. So what happens? The horseshit doesn't end, of course. No. Very similar to what happens in the rest of the neoliberal turn. All of a sudden... Under pressure, the CIA itself essentially takes an entire arm, the the covert operations arm of itself, and spins it off into the private sphere. So if the problem is that Congress can find out the appropriated funds that the CIA is using in order to do fuckery in Chile or do fuckery in Chicago, right? The solution to that isn't to end the fuckery. The solution is to take that drug money that you already realize is good, but make that everything. Put everything off the books now. Mm-hmm. Use Saudi, use French assets in order to create a privatized secret government outside, using the mafia money, using that power in order to get out from under the surveillance of the American people. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, the reprivatization of the process as it becomes, because that's the danger is of, of, of offloading of the capacity of the state is that it is theoretically vulnerable now to its its uh, democratic institutions. Right. I mean, there are, of course, baffles and baffles put in to, to reduce and, and defer CIA being chief amongst them yeah. and preventing it from uh, becoming determinative. But the risk exists. Always. And, yeah. when, and in a moment of crisis like the 70s, the answer is, all right, now that we've established and built this capacity up, thank you, state, we can now, like we do with all of our fucking uh, military technology, we can now privatize it right. and offload it now that it's been built up. And just because and now, it, yeah. Because it goes, yeah, I'm just thinking this for the first time, but like it starts off like we were talking about in the 19th, early 20th centuries as like a private organic enterprise out of the capitalists. Then it becomes bureaucratized, much like a lot of American society becomes, yeah. you know, from business to union, monopoly capital, yep. big labor, whatever. But then at the same time in the 1970s, when that entire enterprise, when the entire post-war order, when that consensus, when Keynesianism, when everything, the class compromise was open to question, you now have this movement towards reprivatizing the CIA and putting it back into capitalist hands with things like the Safari Club, mm-hmm. right? Um, 
where Richard Nixon and his power had essentially, I, I mean, I, I was, I really want to get to this, but I got to say, folks, you need to know when it comes to Watergate, Richard Nixon, innocent. Uh, he got set up. Just like, like Mary and Betty. Just like Mary and Barry. This is 